You are listening to a message from Parkway Church in Kurana. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you as you listen. If you'd like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, parkway-church.com. Through the book of Judges, and uh, I read this story of Samson, and Samson was really mad at a group of people, and uh, it says that he, he hunted down personally, I believe it was 200 foxes, and tied them together, lit them on fire, and ran them through a field to burn the crops. Um, this story had absolutely nothing to do with my message. I was just like, I can't not share this. This is insane. I just read this, and I'm like, man, like, why is there not more Bible movies? Like, that's a movie I would watch. Okay, but here was my initial thought, and again, this is totally unrelated. I just, the story was so crazy to me, I couldn't, I'm like, Samson, if you're wanting to burn a field down, I think there's a lot easier way to do this than catching 200 wild animals, tying them together, lighting them on fire, and running them through a field. I just, my initial thought was probably a bit easier way to do that, but okay, it makes good television, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, my message has nothing to do with the book of Judges, but today we're talking, uh, if you want to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 28. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and NIV will be on the screen today, but um, if you have your Bible and you would like to follow along, Matthew 28, verses 16. So at this point, oh, we have to dismiss the kids. Kids, I'm sorry. I was actually just testing to see how patient you guys were to say if anybody of you would say anything. Fantastic job. <laughs> so at this point, um, at this point, what we're about to read, um, Jesus had just been tried, crucified, and resurrected. Jesus had just risen from the dead. Um, he had just... Uh, Gone uh, for the three days he had started appearing to people. And we read in this story, uh, who knows what this story is called? Does anybody know what, what Matthew 28 is? What he gives here is called the Great Commission. The Great Commission um, is a pivotal turning point in the New Testament. Um, the Great Commission um, is a passage that defines the entire New Testament. I would say um, that the Great Commission that we're about to read right here is essentially what drives the entire New Testament forward. And it's literally a matter of three verses, okay? Um, this is where Jesus gives his disciples their new mission. Now that he has died, now that we have access um, to, to the Father in heaven, this is our new mission that he gives the disciples. He says, right, it's me. Hey, I'm alive. Here's what you're going to do. I'm taken off. I'll be back in a few thousand years, but I'm taken off, and this is what you're to do while I'm gone. This is essentially Jesus giving us his mission statement. And I believe if our mission statement as a church isn't, um, isn't uh, in coordination or cooperation, sorry, with the Great Commission, then I think we are doing church very wrong. So verse 16 says this. 
Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Or some say to the very ends of the earth. So right off the top, it says people were on their way to travel to come see Jesus after he had risen. It says that some got there and they worshipped him. They recognized him. They could have felt uh, the glory from Jesus and they worshipped him right away. It doesn't really say how many people there were. It's very hard to say in this passage. Um, But some doubted. I just want to say that sometimes we've all, I think, we've all at some point been the person that's doubted. Right? Where Jesus is right before us, doing work right in front of our eyes, sometimes we, we doubt. Is that really Jesus? Are these people making some of this up? You know, I, I've caught myself saying, you know what, I don't want to be hyper-spiritual. That probably wasn't Jesus. That was just a coincidence. That people on their way up to the mountain could have been like, yeah, so apparently this Jesus guy's risen again. Okay, I'll see it when I believe it, walking up the mountain, like, yeah, sure. Because I think it's so easy sometimes, church, when we read scripture, to think of it, this is going to be hard to phrase, but I find myself do this. Sometimes we read it almost as if it's like a novel, and you're like, wow, that's cool, Jesus rose again. But because Jesus actually rose again, like people saw this first person. Like we read it in a book, third person, we kind of like envision a story, how we like it, and we're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But as I was reading this, it kind of just hit me like, this actually happened. Like, it actually happened. in people with their own retinas, seeing it with their own eyes, the risen Jesus. It's hard for us sometimes because we think everything in the theoretical. Like, oh yeah, Jesus rose again, my sins are forgiven, cool, cool. These people, like, watch this with their own two eyes unfold. And some people still doubted. We don't know why they doubted. We don't know who these people were. But I think we've all at some point been there. If, if we go to verse 18, we know that, um, so verse 18 says, um, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is important. This is important to this passage. So we know, those of us who know theology and doctrine, that nothing can be added or taken away from God. God is perfect. God is whole. God is the power that created everything, that keeps everything going. Nothing can ever change or alter about God himself or God's personality or God's character. Sometimes we see in the Bible, you're like, why would God do that? That seems contradictory. It's not contradictory because God never changes. We see sometimes, obviously, um, the birth of Jesus starts the New Testament which separates the Old and New Testament. And when one um, may look on the surface, think, man, but God was a lot different in the Old Testament than he is now. Seems like he changed. But it's it's not true. God has not changed his character. He has changed the way that he deals with with people. He's changed the way that sin is now dealt with because he died. Jesus changed that. 
He changed the status quo, but God himself never changes. Okay? So we know that nothing can be added or taken away from God. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, it's not that he never had authority before. It's not that he had to beg God for it and say, God, you probably should change me as a son of God now because, you know, I kind of died and stuff like you said. It's not that this power wasn't available to Jesus before. It's not that Jesus changed or God changed and all of a sudden had this authority Rather, Jesus merited this authority through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. It's incorrect to look at that verse as, well, Jesus did something, and now he has authority that he never had before. He had this authority from the day um, he came to earth, from the beginning of creation, It's just he's able to take that authority into action because now sin and death is defeated. That's the difference. Jesus went from a state of humiliation. When he was hanging on that cross, he went from a state of humiliation, being mocked and beat, to a state of victory and triumph, and ultimately a state of heavenly glory. This was the the son who the father was pleased with. This is Jesus in all of his glory, has risen from the dead, conquered death, declared victory over sin. Now Jesus himself is clothed in the righteousness and full glory of heaven. It's incredible. I think it's important that, so in light of verse 18, what we just read, Jesus, having done everything that he has just done, Jesus, who has just, again, lived a perfect life, was tried, crucified for something he technically didn't do on our behalf, died, rose from the dead, walked around for 40 days, surprising people like, hey, it's Jesus, here I am, right? This is what he decides to say. These are Jesus' last moments on earth. Before he leaves and ascends up to heaven. Think about that. When people would say, you know, if one day when we're all near the end of our life and it's like, do you have any last words? If you think, what will my last words be? I think that's an incredible thing. That's a powerful thing to think. And before Jesus ascends up to heaven, obviously, church, we know that he's returning again soon. But this passage that we just read, this is what Jesus says before he goes away. For, I mean, at least 2,000 years. <laughs> we don't know exactly how long, but, and he, but Jesus knew. This is the last thing I'm going to say to people before I leave. He gives the great commission. He tells his disciples their new mission. I think that automatically gives this tremendous importance. The great commission concludes... Maybe not concludes, but um, that's what I have in my notes, but I'm kind of realizing now that's probably the wrong word to use because that means that there's a conclusion to something, and Jesus' teaching will never end. The word of God never dies. So maybe conclusion is the wrong word, but it ties together all of the teachings that Jesus did in his ministry. The Great Commission, this mission that he gives us, that he gave to his disciples in that moment, ties together all of the parables 
all the sermons that he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, all of the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus performed, all of his times in the crowd are now tied together in this great commission. What he did in his ministry, and the disciples are probably starting to get this now. Jesus demonstrated the great commission in his ministry. In his three years of ministry, he showed them exactly what this mission is. Now he's flipping it, saying, all right, I've shown you what to do. I'm taking off, but you guys are going to do my work. Here's what I like. It's not in this specific passage. I forget exactly where it is in the Gospels. But Jesus says that you will actually accomplish greater things than me. Do you want to know why, church, that is? It's because we have the same spirit that allowed Jesus to do these things. I've said this sometimes to our youth students, is that we often think Jesus had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, or that Jesus... um, was it's hard we have to remember that he was fully god or fully man as well as fully god so we have that same spirit that allowed jesus to walk on water that same spirit that literally walked up to a tomb and said lazarus come on out let's go buddy that same power that allowed jesus to take bread and fish and multiply it is the same spirit that we have living within us right now as believers But guess what? There's millions of us, right? Jesus was limited because he was human. God is omnipresent, but Jesus wasn't because Jesus had feet and legs and had to walk around. Holy Spirit is everywhere all at once, but Jesus had to walk just like we did. He had to travel. But there's millions of us now with the same spirit available to us that Christ had. So the word says we can accomplish greater things than he did. And that's all tied together in this great commission. You know, the followers of Jesus were taught about the kingdom of God. This was one of the um, most common themes in Jesus' teaching. Um, If any of us read the book of Matthew, the teaching of the kingdom of God is everywhere. Most of Jesus' teaching was, um, a lot of his sermons, a lot of his parables were tied in with the kingdom of God. And to the disciples, the kingdom of God was probably like this big elusive thing, like, wow, the kingdom of God. That sounds awesome. A lot of the Jewish people, so Matthew, who we're reading um, right now, obviously, who wrote the gospel of Matthew, his audience that he was writing to was Jewish people. Okay, so the reason we have, you know, uh, the reason we have four different Gospels that seem to tell the same story. I used to wonder that as a kid, like, why the heck do they have to talk about the death of Christ three times? I don't get it. The reason is, is because each um, Gospel writer was writing to a different audience and had different, um, and would emphasize different aspects of Christ. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and this Jewish audience had the understanding um, from Old Testament scripture that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And so a lot of them have this idea that 
the king of Israel is going to come and he's going to be a mighty warrior and he's going to conquer all their enemies and defeat all the armies around them. And that's how he was going to come because that's what King David did and all the other kings of Israel. So Matthew's trying to explain to a Jewish audience that, no, 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 this is the Messiah. His kingdom is not physical. It's a spiritual kingdom. This king, so a lot of these Jewish people were waiting around for this incredible army and kingdom of Israel with probably their big giant castle and whatnot. They're waiting for this incredible physical kingdom, but God's kingdom lives within us. There are two aspects to the kingdom of God. There's the, um, if you go into, if you study theological books or theologians, they often use this phrase, there's the, the right now and then the not yet aspect of the kingdom. There's the present and the future aspect. Sorry. The present aspect of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God that dwells within us right now. It's the global church. It's Christians all around the world. And those that have, the Christians that have passed and are now in eternity with with Jesus. That's the, the current present kingdom of God. And we need to build that. The Great Commission is telling us this kingdom of God that dwells within us is what our task is right now to build that up before I return. The future aspect of the kingdom of God is the new Jerusalem that he's going to be building for us. The physical kingdom of God. Um, I don't want to dive too much into uh, revelation and uh, eschatology, which means the study of the end times. Because, I mean, a lot of us know this is a whole other series (laughs) The whole lot of other sermons. But the Bible talks about what's called the millennium. That we're actually not necessarily, when we die, when we die or if we're raptured up to heaven, if Jesus comes uh, for the second time while we're still here, we're actually going to go reign with Christ for a thousand years on earth. That's, a few, that's part of the future aspect of the kingdom of God. But the disciples at this point are starting to realize, I think, what Jesus is talking about. Because when they heard before that the idea of the kingdom of God to the Pharisees was probably seemed silly. They're like, the kingdom of God? Are you kidding me? We're in no place to set up a kingdom here. Right? They were controlled by the Romans. But the people who understood the teaching of God, and some people were probably in this passage starting to figure out, wait a second, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that we're all a part of right now. You know, the, the, Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God probably seemed incomplete. Probably seemed um, a little bit, I guess, yeah, I guess incomplete, sorry. It's probably the right, the right phrase to use. The disciples were probably up until this point like, so, Jesus is dead. <laughs> this kingdom of God he talks about, what is it? What are we supposed to do with it? What does it look like? And when is it coming? Right? They, they were probably thinking, so Jesus is talking about building the kingdom of God, so what am I supposed to do now? Right? For those that may have followed Jesus but doubted that he was going uh, to rise from the grave, we were probably like, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, I don't know, this kingdom of God teaching didn't really seem to have a conclusion to it. But now Jesus gives the answer. We are the answer to the kingdom of God. 
They had received their knowledge of the kingdom. Now it was time to build it. It is time to put it to work. Jesus, uh, let's go to verse 19. Jesus' command in verse 19 says, Go and make disciples. We see Jesus model this for them as well. What I love about Jesus is that when he commands us to do something in Scripture, he always already showed us how to do it. He showed us how to build his kingdom. Jesus showed us how to build disciples. Jesus spent three years of his ministry focusing on the 12 disciples. He invested in these 12 disciples. He rebuked them when he needed to. He encouraged them when he needed to. Jesus said, hey guys, come with me. Watch watch what I'm going to do with this bread and fish. Check this out. He showed them what to do. Now, when he tells his followers, I'm guessing there was a lot more than the 12 there during the Great Commission. He's telling them, go make disciples, just as I did. He gave them a model. In church, that's our purpose is to make disciples. I believe that if Jesus were to walk in right now, he would say, are you making disciples? Are you fulfilling what I told you to do? Jesus not only taught the disciples, but he equipped them for the mission ahead. Now they were to replicate Christ, just as he showed them. Jesus, his life was like a textbook. He showed them how to perform miracles. He showed them the power of God to bring healing. He showed them how to speak to the crowds. He showed them how to interpret Old Testament scripture properly, unlike the Pharisees. There was a lot of pretty bad doctrine going around back then on the Old Testament. Jesus explained to them, showed them, this is, this is the Old Testament. This is how it's fulfilled. This, that's how I fulfilled it. Now this is how you're going to teach it. Um, it goes on to say they were to baptize believers in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To baptize represents, and most of us I'm sure know, and some of us might not, baptism represents dying to your old self and becoming alive in your new self. The point of water baptism is when you go under the water, your old self dies, it goes away, and you're brought up a new creation in Christ. But when you're baptized, here's an important thing. There's a movement that happens in baptism that's important. There's a bap- in baptism, there's a movement from something to something. The same with the word holy. When we say that we are holy people, God's holy people, it means that we're set apart from something and we are moved to something set apart for God's purposes. And that is the same thing that happens in baptism. So when he commands his followers, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's telling them, go find people, make them die to their old selves, and leave their sin behind. Let them come into into the new kingdom. They're being adopted into the kingdom of God. When he, when, and that's an important aspect when we get water baptized, is you die to your old self, yes, but you're coming up now in the family of God. You're being moved to the eternal family of God. You, that means when you become a Christian and you're baptized, your paperwork has signed. Pastor Mitch, I mean, I became a Christian before I was a pastor. I mean, I'll, 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 it definitely happened in that order, I promise. But it's like, 
Mitch, his paper is now signed. He's now God's son. He is part of the family of God. That's how we build the kingdom. That's how Jesus modeled them to build the kingdom. Jesus goes on to say uh, in verse 19, teach them to do everything that I have commanded you. Sounds a little intimidating if you ask me. Teach them to do everything that I've commanded you. The disciples are told to teach people just as Christ had taught them. I mean, if you look today, 2,000 years later, we, have, we still preach sermons. We still preach sermons very similar to how Jesus preached sermons. Do you know why? Because Jesus preached sermons perfectly. <laughs> right? We're teaching people just as Christ taught. We're still doing it today. That's hopefully what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> this is the message of the church. This is the mission for the church. Teach people as I have taught. Again, again, I, I think that's one of my favorite things that Jesus did. He's like, you know what? Some people get it, but for those who don't, for the hands-on people, I'm going to show you how to teach. Jesus always equipped the people before he commissioned them. They probably didn't even realize. I, I believe that some of the disciples probably didn't realize that they were being trained that whole time. They probably were thinking, yeah, I'll follow this guy. This is a good time. <laughs> this is crazy. This guy's raising people from the dead. And Peter's like, man, I got to walk on water for like eight seconds. That was sweet. But they were being trained this entire time. Because Jesus is like, again, I'm taking off. It's your turn. I'm like, well, what are we supposed to do? Exactly what I just did for the last three years. You've seen it. You know it. Now go and do it. So the last verse, Jesus says, Surely I am with you till the end of the age. Surely I am with you until the very end of the age. This is where things get exciting. This is where things get exciting because at this point in time, for the disciples, this verse, the, these words that Jesus spoke were incomplete still. They hadn't come to pass. They're thinking, but Jesus, you just said you're leaving. You're going back up to heaven. How are you with us? But we know what comes next, right? We know that chronologically, the book of Acts comes immediately after the Gospels. We know that, um, I believe it's Luke that writes, um, it's only Matthew that records the Great Commission as we know it, but Luke records some of the last words of Jesus. And we know what comes next, right, church? Some of us do, some of us don't. What happens next is he says, go to the city I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. And we know the events of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we build, um, is how the Pentecostal church, it's, it's a key passage that is the foundation of our doctrine as Pentecostals. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, and this is how. So they go to the city, they gather in the upper room, and for the first time ever, the Holy Spirit is freely poured out on all of the people there. What an incredible time. Here's another thing, too. Um, going back to that idea of um, sometimes I like to read passages, and I, I, 
It's hard for me to envision it happening in real life because it's so long ago. It reads like a story, but these, these believers gathered in an upper room and actually had fire on their heads. Like, that's crazy. Like, the Holy Spirit actually poured out on people to the point where it was visible. I just find that wild that that actually happened and people were there to witness that first, firsthand. That's incredible. And we know that that is how Jesus is going to be with us. When he said those words, I will be with you till the ends of the earth, what he meant was that spirit right now that allowed me to do all of this, that spirit that just helped me conquer death, that spirit that is allowing me to speak these words is the same spirit that's going to be with all of you very shortly so that you will have the power to do what I just did. Isn't that incredible? So church, in conclusion, how do we as a church fulfill the Great Commission? Our mission has not changed in 2,000 years. What's important for us to understand is that the method upon which we fulfill the Great Commission will change. Our culture is constantly changing. Our culture never settles. Culture is always shifting. It's constantly moving, um, whether backwards or forwards. Our culture is always shifting. Um, I actually had no intentions of sharing this, but I actually found this very interesting. Um, we often think of culture as bad, bad, bad. Culture is always moving towards bad. There's always more sin in the world. For the most part, that's true. Did you know that uh, sociologists did a study on millennials versus Gen Z people? And there's actually a very big miscommunication on what the term millennial means. I've heard a lot of people group millennials as just these spoiled kids that don't want to work. And guess what? The people that are doing it are technically actually millennials. They just don't realize it because nobody knows what it actually means. Millennials are uh, people from 1996... No, I'm sorry, 1995 to, my math is really bad, but the oldest millennial right now would be 38 years old. So if you're under 38 years old and you are older than 23, you are classified as a millennial. So you're one of them. (laughs) Just find it funny, that's all. The term millennial has such a bad connotation with it, but there's a lot of things millennials are doing very well. Caring about social justice. They seem to have more of love for people than other generations do. But here's a glimmer, here's a, a glimmer of hope. Sociologists did a study. Gen Z, or as Americans say, Gen Z, is those younger than millennials, born 1996 and younger. Okay? I was talking to Ali. Technically, we are technically in two different generations, which is kind of weird. But she's smarter than me, wiser than me anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, Did you know, church, that, and again, this is just on the side, um, talking about culture. Gen Zs are actually um, the most moral generation that we've seen in over 100 years. They say that Gen Zs are... Um, abstaining from sex until marriage more than any other generation has in 100 years. They're the most sober and free-from-drug generation that we've seen in over 100 years. 
They say that Gen Zs have seen the mistakes millennials have made, the mistakes that baby boomers have made, and Gen Xs have made, and said, yep, we're not doing that. I just find that incredible. So as I'm talking about culture shifting, it looks potentially church like the future of the church looks good. They say that millennials are the most skeptical, which is my generation, the most skeptical generation of the organized church and organizations in general. They look at them with cynicism and skepticism and say, "Uh, don't want nothing to do with that. They say that Gen Z's look at them with excitement. They say the way that Gen Z's view the organized church or organized religion, as these sociologists call it, And the way that they view big corporations is with hope and say, you know what? We need these corporations. We need these organizations, but we need to make sure that it's good and that they're running properly and that they care about people and the impact that they're making. It looks like there's a lot of hope for our church. If this study is true, which I forget exactly who it was done by, but That shows us a lot of hope, church, because it's easy for us to look at the future with such doom and be like, oh, where's the church going to be in 30 years? Millennials are the least likely to go to church, by far. Um, Each generation took a bit of a dip. Um, When you have your baby boomers, your Gen Xs, then it's like a huge dip in millennials. And they say that Gen Z generation is making a climb up, going to church. There's hope for the future. There's hope for our church to fulfill the Great Commission. Don't you find that exciting? So easy to look at it with so much doom and distress and what's going to happen in the future. But as culture changes, we're going to have to change our methods, but we don't change the message. We change our methods, but we never change our message. So for us to fulfill the Great Commission, I think if Jesus were to walk in right now, let's say Jesus right now walked through that kitchen door, I think firstly we would all probably fall and fall over and be like, what's happening right now? I don't think we'd be able to handle it. Then, you know, he'd be like, all right, get up. Everything's fine. It's just me, Jesus. (laughs) And after this whole shebang happens, I think Jesus would walk up to us. And I think if he were to give us a mission, I don't think it'd be any different than this one. I don't think it would change. Jesus would walk in here, and we said, Jesus, what do you want us to do? He would say, what do you mean? I want you to go make disciples. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach people as I've taught, because my spirit's with you. Don't think anything would change. Jesus could probably give us some practical tips, like, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. This is how you can reach people a little easier. But his message or his, uh, sorry, his mission for us, I don't think would change. How can we as a church penetrate cynicism in a world that is not a Christian world anymore, in a world that there's so much um, stigma, there's so much, um, sorry, somebody help me, what's the word? Not preconceptions about church, but so many... um, Stereotypes, yeah, so much. Um, yeah, I can't think of the word off the... T- I, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, I should have wrote it in my notes last night. I was like, no, no, I know where I'm going with this. I forget. 
But yeah, with, with already so many preconceived ideas about the church and about God, so much baggage towards the church, how do we, how do we combat that? Because I, I'm just being honest, and I don't normally point people out, but standing on London Road and yelling with a microphone is not the way to do it. Telling people, oh yeah, yeah, you should come to my church, we're great here. It's clearly not really working anymore for the global church. How do we do it? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and me are going to have a hard time if we try in our flesh to knock down the preconceptions that people have about church that people may have had for years. We can do that till we're blue in the face. But we know that in a moment, the Holy Spirit can tear all of that down, lay someone's heart bare, and speak to them. We know that our words don't mean a whole lot without the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the word of God says that our word is to be accompanied by what? What is the gospel supposed to be accompanied by? Signs and wonders. Instead of telling people, Jesus can heal you. I'm going to pray for you when I'm at my house in my private time. Why don't we heal people? When we tell people, you know, Jesus will get you through your marriage. Why don't we pray and have Jesus get people through their marriage? Why don't we bring people in here? One thing the church doesn't address, and this is one thing, going back to the millennial thing, that drives millennials bonkers. They say that the church never addresses the mental health crisis that's going on right now. Church, it's a problem, and the church doesn't do a whole lot about it. We don't talk about it. We don't like to address it. We like to pretend it's not there. How do we combat this? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead of saying, hey, your depression that you're facing, God can take you through that. Why don't we have enough power of the Holy Spirit living in us to say, hey, you're going to wake up tomorrow, and your life's going to be changed. And then it happens. That's what was happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, they were praying for people. They were getting healed, being baptized by the thousands. It's because the Spirit had poured out. And they were living by the Spirit. Church, that's how we do it. So in conclusion, we need to ask ourselves, as the global church, as Christians all around the world, we need to ask ourselves as Parkway Church, And we need to ask ourselves as individuals, what is my role right now in the Great Commission? Because what we sometimes lose sight of is that when Jesus gave this Great Commission, Arnie had a place in his plan. It wasn't just, ah, find where you think you need to ah, find somewhere, you know. Go talk to this guy with a lanyard. He'll tell you in the Great Commission where to go. He'll find something for you. But... Jesus had a plan for Bailey when he, when he gave this great commission. There's an exact role he has for you in his book of life. There's a role for every one of us that only you can fulfill. So church, let's find out what it is and let's live in that, okay? Before I pray in closing, um, for those of you who might not have been here last week or didn't hear the news, um, we have a new pastor. We finally found a pastor Call and Jody Patterson, 
And we're going to quickly pray for their church because they're announcing today their church probably just, what time is it? Probably just found out that uh, they're going to be coming here. You know, again, we're gaining something incredible. They're losing something incredible, but we know it's all part of God's plan. So in closing, I'm going to pray uh, for all of us, and I'm going to pray for them. And just so everybody's aware, we are allowed to finally talk openly about our new pastor, okay? Because this church knows that they're coming here. So Lord God, we just thank you that we can gather here today in your house. God, we just declare that we surrender our hearts and our minds to your purposes. Lord, this great commission that you gave us has not changed. Your mission and purpose for us has not changed. We pray, Lord, that you would, by Holy Spirit, by your power, that you would give us new methods, that you would speak um, direction and guidance into us. God, that you would birth people in this church new ideas just like that, like I know how to reach a group of people. That you would begin to birth things in us and that you would give us the boldness, courage, and resources to do it. We declare all of these things, Lord, for your glory. I pray that in our own hearts, that you would speak to every person in this room. Let, make it clear to us what our role is right now and what we're moving toward to fulfill this. Lord, if Parkway Church isn't making disciples, if Parkway Church is not feeding the hungry, teaching people about Jesus then we're not a church, then we're a a club. Lord God, I just declare that in this future uh, season that we're coming into, Lord God, that there would just be tremendous favor on our church. God, we, we ask for your tremendous favor as we head into this new season under new leadership, God, that we believe is commissioned by you. Lord, we declare that this next season of Parkway will be a season where where uh, there will be a special and abundant anointing on all of your people in our ministries. God, I declare back in Welland right now for Colin Jody, we pray for Faith Tabernacle in Welland, a special anointing on them. Lord, there's going to be a little bit of a peace missing in that church for a while. Thank you so much for listening to our message. We hope that it blessed and encouraged you. If you liked what you heard, we would love for you to come join us on a Sunday morning here in Corona at 10 a.m. at 551 Murray Drive. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church and as a community, you can visit our website at parkway-church.com.